you turn over in your Bibles to uh, first, first Corinthians chapter five, or First Thessalonians, <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter five. Yeah, long week, long morning. First Thessalonians chapter five. Um, today we're going to be closing off our study in this wonderful epistle, this letter that we have before us, and so uh, we want to. It's kind of a special time whenever you end a book. It's, um, it's, it's, we've been here for 36 messages now. This will be the 36th message. So we spend several months together dealing with what Paul has um, blessed us with. And today I entitled the, the, the message, What a Way to Say Goodbye. <laughs> and uh, really Paul has a knack for doing that at the end of all of his letters. And uh, we've all probably witnessed more than a dozen times at airports or even uh, terminals, bus terminals, things like that back in the day, or college campuses, um, visiting for dropping your freshmen off, um, or maybe you had a loved one in the military, and I remember many times when Will, my son-in-law, was shipping out, and it was a uh, bittersweet time as he was on deployment away from his family. Or it could be as simple as somebody going to kindergarten for the first day of school. But there comes a time where you've got to say goodbye. <laughs> and it's kind of a dreadful moment for some. And it re- has some regret. It has some longing. It's even maybe filled with some hope. Um, but it's awkward sometimes. And usually it plays out this way if you've been around that at all. Uh, kind of you have some small talk. Maybe on the way to the airport or on the, the way as you're, you're getting ready to leave you know, boy, the weather looks good. What do you think? You know, I hope you have a good time. Uh, don't forget to text us when you land, whatever it might be. And then the departure time comes and it becomes a little more serious and you have that embrace, that lasting embrace, maybe a second or third time and uh, one more time just to make sure everything's good. And then usually some tears flow and boy, we're going to miss you and your heart pulls out, pulls, uh, pours out to them and, you know, Words like, well, we're so proud of you, we love you so much, you'll do well, don't forget us. And at last it comes time to turn away and to watch them walk toward the terminal or down the tunnel or wherever they're going um, and say goodbye. And they're gone for a period of time in your life. And the last few verses here in First Thessalonians, Paul says his final goodbyes to the church of Thessalonica. Now, he does write him a second letter, which we're going to be going through next year, so he does come back, but uh, as far as his, his, the letter goes, and he concludes this very uh, practical letter with some very uh, profound words of farewell, and he writes them as, as, as if he's writing a close friend, uh, a personal friend, uh, instead of just going with the cold-hearted, you know, hey, sincerely yours, Paul the Apostle, see you later. No, he doesn't do that. He takes about six verses to really pour his heart out to these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, and, and it's a kind of a, it's a wonderful benediction, and it serves as a wonderful capstone for everything that we've learned in these 36 messages. And from the start, Paul has constantly uh, expressed his, his love in so many different ways, to these young believers in this young church. And um, in many ways, 
they were probably the pride and joy of Paul's heart. He founded this church, and though he had already planted several other churches by the time he got to Thessalonica, these believers really uh, had a special place in his heart. And you can tell just by the way he writes to them. In fact, each chapter of this letter has him saying something special to these believers. I mean, just remember back in verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 1, he says, I give thanks for you. He was very thankful for their faith in Christ and the work that they were doing there. And then in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, he says basically, I love you dearly. (laughs) He pours out his heart again. In chapter 3, in verses 4 and 5, he says, you know what, I have a concern for you. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 and 9 to 11, he exhorts them. And we read through all of that very very pointed exhortation from the Apostle Paul. And then in chapter 5, verses 11 and 14, he wants to encourage them. And so he's pouring out his heart to them over and over again. And Paul was ready now to bid farewell, to say goodbye. And, I mean, stop and think about it. Back in the day, he didn't know if he'd ever see these people again. I mean, he had to leave because he was under persecution. So he left them kind of in an upheaval, of persecution, and now he's writing them this letter, and he says, wow, I, I want to say goodbye, but I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to have the opportunity to write to you again. Now, he does, obviously, because we have the second letter, but he doesn't know that at the time. And sometimes when you're leaving somebody, whether they're going off to war or whether they're going on a trip somewhere that's kind of perilous, and you don't know if you're going to see them again, that goodbye means a little something more than somebody going to the grocery store, you know. Uh, my wife always, whenever I leave the house, she always, I want to phrase this right, she doesn't make me, but I always kiss my wife <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> I was going to say she makes me kiss her goodbye. Um, and to be honest, sometimes it is because I'm in a hurry and I'm like, oh, really? Okay, come on. She goes, well, what would happen if you were in Iraq or something and I never saw you again? I said, well, I'd be in heaven. I mean, you know, uh, I wouldn't be worrying about anything, including you. Uh, so, you know, you're on your own then. But, um, but it's, it's important to say those goodbyes, you know, to take the time. And so he didn't know if he would have contact with his friends here in Thessalonica or not. He didn't know if it would be writing them a letter of good news or bad news down the road. And so there was many uncertainties that led Paul to write. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see in verses 23 to 24, he basically summarizes his thoughts on the Lord. He focuses on the Lord. And then in verses 25 to 27, he talks to the people. It's his final words to the people. And then in verse 8, he kind of closes it off with some remarks about grace. And so we want to look through these verses together this morning Um, But let's not forget what Paul had just finished in the main body of this letter. Remember, this this letter that we took 36 weeks to go through was meant to be read in one setting. It was a letter. Sometimes we forget that about books of the Bible. And we want to dial down on everything. We think it's important. It's all inspired. But at the same time, it was meant to be read as a letter. And so if you just remember what he just finished doing, he, he took this young church through a series of commands that kind of began in verse 12 of chapter 5, all the way down to verse 19. And before that, he was speaking about the shepherd's responsibility to the sheep. He was talking about the sheep's responsibility to the shepherd. And then he talks about the sheep's responsibility to the sheep. <laughs> and then he says, ultimately, 
there is a responsibility that lies between the sheep and the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we covered all that in the previous weeks of this study. We talked about there's a responsibility in verse 19 not to quench the Spirit. There's a responsibility to respond to God's Word as God's people. There's a responsibility for us to be discerning. He says, test everything in verse 21. There's a responsibility for us to hold fast to what is good. And then there's a responsibility to abstain from evil. And we talked about how the holding fast and abstaining from evil was talking about the teaching that was going on. He was really addressing teachers here and what they were teaching. And so we come to what we might call the the P.S. You know, you write a letter and then you put P.S., right? You ever got a letter with a P.S. on a postscript, right? Something after the thought. And uh, I've learned early on in life, always read the P.S., There's a lot of important stuff in the P.S. It puts everything in perspective. (laughs) You know, I mean, you might get a letter from somebody, boy, it just rips you apart. And then the P.S. is, hey, just joking, have a good day or whatever. And you don't read the P.S. So you're all ticked off. This person wrote you this horrible letter. And it was all a joke, right? So you got to learn to make sure you read the P.S., the postscript. But it's sometimes the most important part of the letter. And sometimes it puts everything else into context. And that's kind of what Paul does here. And so I want you to stand and honor God's word this morning as we read verses 23 to 28. And then after we pray, you can have a seat. But he says there in verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And then in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And in one translation, you have the word amen at the end. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray you'd apply it to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, starting right off here in verses 23 and 24, Paul expresses his thoughts on the Lord. And his thoughts were always on the Lord, but here he kind of dials down a little bit. One commentator, F.F. Bruce, says this is kind of a, a wish prayer, he calls it. It's a wish prayer, indicating that this is both a prayer and a blessing at the same time. You know, sometimes you give a a blessing at the end of a service. Well, this was both a prayer and a blessing. And it's as if he was standing in the, the midst of these young believers in Thessalonica. And, you know, he wouldn't have been standing there like you see so many pastors do at the end of the service. You know, they open up their hands and they look up and they, and they say, Father, sanctify those dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, he, no, he was looking into their eyes. This was very personal for him. He wanted to understand their hearts, and he wanted them to understand his heart. And so he blesses them. He pronounces a blessing upon them, which is really a prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He's offering them this prayer out of a personal concern. He's giving them reassurance, really, for the future, as it says there in your outline, verses 23 and 24. And he shares a concern that's rooted in their need for holiness. You know, if there's one thing that we need more than anything else as believers in Christ today in our lives is holiness. 
is understanding what it means to be set apart entirely, completely onto the Lord. And so when he says there, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This isn't the first time that Paul has addressed sanctification in this letter. Uh, He challenged them to live in sexual purity back in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. He said there, he said, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, same word, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in what? Sanctification. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, May God establish your hearts without blame in holiness. There you go. That's the idea. Set apart holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. See, to be sanctified means to be set apart unto God. It's the ongoing, the process of sanctification in a believer's life basically is this. It's the ongoing spiritual process by which God increasingly sets our hearts, sets believers apart from sin and moves them toward holiness, moves them toward Christ-likeness. And so he wants them to understand this. God has always commanded his people to be holy, to be set apart. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16 Peter writes, and he's quoting Leviticus 19, by the way, but he writes this, but like the Holy One who has called you, be yourselves, what? Holy also in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Sometimes I think Christians forget what they're called. They're called, what? Christians. What is that? Little Christ. We're representatives of Christ. And that's what we're called to be. He exhorted them in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, when we went through that, to remain doctrinally and morally alert and to anticipate the coming of Christ. He wanted them to be ready when Christ came back for them in the rapture. And all of these things relate to what we call believers' sanctification or being set apart for the worshiping and obeying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this brief conclusion, he returns to that theme that he's given them several times throughout the letter, but it's so important he brings it up again. And this time, though, it's almost Paul points out the sanctification is really not even up to us, and yet it is. He says, no, it's God himself that does this. It's ultimately God that works out this sanctification in us. It's not our work for him. It's his work in us. But we still have to cooperate. We're still called to live holy lives. We are active in yielding to the power of the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Yield to the Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit's work to be done in our lives. And depend on God's gracious and powerful provision But ultimately, it's really God that's working in us. Philippians chapter 2 says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This can be kind of confusing. Because you can say, well, if God's the one that's doing all this, what do I have to do? Do I have to do anything? You're saying it's all God. That's what he says there. Now may the God of 
peace himself. And he uses here a very profound usage of that word in the original language because it's really an intensifying pronoun, himself. In other words, there's no other, no other being that can do this for you. You can't do this yourself. There's no equivocation about who is ultimately the source of power for godly living. And guess what? It's not us. If it was left up to us, we'd fail every day. Amen? Not only does Paul use this intensifying pronoun himself, but in the original language, this is the first word in the sentence. Which basically means it's the word that receives all the emphasis. It's God himself who is sanctifying us. And he identifies this God in verse 23 as the God of peace. This is kind of a unique title, but it appears in most of the different benediction that Paul writes out in his letters. You find it in Romans at the end, in, in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, and Hebrews. You find it in there, whoever wrote that. And I think here it's, it's Paul's maybe Jewish way of thinking. Of, you know, you think of, of peace as what? The Hebrew term shalom, right? That's how they greet each other, shalom. But it means much more than just the absence of noise, or it means much more than the, the freedom from trouble. You know, sometimes when your kids were younger and they were just wreaking havoc in the house, you know, you say, can I get a little peace around here, right? I want a little shalom in the house. Everybody shut up, be quiet, too loud. The absence of noise, that's what we think of as being something being peaceful. When you're out in the forest and after a freshly fallen snow and you're looking around, it's just so it's beautiful, right? That's a peaceful situation to be in. But it means much more than that. It means much more than just the freedom from trouble. Um, it has the idea of, of being whole. It has the idea of, of your own well-being. And so when you think of this God of peace who's sanctifying us, we have to understand what is sanctification. We know that it's God continually setting us apart to become more like Christ, and we've taught on this before, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but there's really three aspects of sanctification. There's three aspects in which God sets us apart or makes us holy, and the first one is what we would call positional or past sanctification. Positional sanctification. What does that mean? That, that, this is a one-time deal, right? This is something that God does on our behalf, and it was accomplished through Christ's sacrifice at the moment of salvation. The moment you've come to trust in Christ, you are positionally sanctified before God. In other words, God no longer looks at you as sinful, even though you still may commit sins. We all do, because we're in the flesh. We're here grappling with this whole process of becoming more holy. But this positional sanctification is something that has happened at a moment in time in the past that has set you apart completely, positionally, to God. And, and this is something that doesn't happen over a process of time. This isn't something that happens 
you know, you don't become more and more holy. No, you are declared, we've heard the term justification, right? You are declared justified. You are declared righteous before a holy God. Not because you yourself are righteous, because you're not. Because the Bible says we've all what? We've all fallen short. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways before a holy God. But God loves us so much, he has provided Christ to pay for our sins. So when those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins come to the cross and say, Jesus, you know what? I've been trying to do this for a long time. I can't do it. I'm going to trust you. Your word says that you will forgive me my sins. I'm going to take my sins and I'm going to put them at your feet. I'm going to confess my sins to you. And Jesus, take control of my life because, frankly, I've been in control for all these years and I haven't done a very good job. So you created me. You, you can probably do a little bit better job. So I'm going to give you control of my life. I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to not just come to you as Savior, but I'm going to come to you as what? Lord. I'm going to give you control, carte blanche over my life. That's what salvation is. It's coming to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And when you do that, when that transaction is made, when God takes you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, when, when Christ, when God looks at you as a sinful being and he says, well, you know what? I don't see a sinful being anymore. I see Christ because you've trusted my son and you're covered by the blood of Christ. All your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. What a wonderful message that is. And this positional sanctification that happens is pointed out in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, verse 30, Paul says this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, listen, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's that word, sanctification, holiness. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Verse 6 or verse 11 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians says this, and such, Paul says, were some of you. He just got listed all these, he just got done listing all these people who committed all these horrific sins. <laughs> and he wanted the, the people in Corinth to know, hey, don't get too prideful. You know, it'd be like me getting up here, oh, do you remember all these sinful people out there, they're doing all these horrible things, whatever. And Paul says, hey, don't get too prideful there, pastor. You were one of them. <laughs> And so were you, and so were you, and so were you. We all were. We all sinned before a holy God. And so Paul says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, And such were some of you, listen, but you were washed. Not your being washed. You were washed. It was something that has been done. And you were, it says, sanctified. You were made holy. That's that word. And you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's no way we could stand before a holy God and say, hey God, look at me, allow me into heaven. You know, I think I'm a good person. I try to help people. I try to maybe feed some homeless once in a while or give away some clothes to charity or go to church once in a while. You know, I'm trying to do the right thing here. And God says, no, no, I can't accept you that way. Your works are not going to make it. There's no way but you know what? The good news is there is a way, and that's through Christ. If you come to Christ, the Bible says you are washed as white as new fallen snow. 
You're sanctified, you're justified, you're declared righteous, even though you don't have any righteousness in and of yourself. See, the problem with us as believers, sometimes we start living the Christian life, we come to Christ, we start to grow, we start to change our lifestyle, we, we grow in the Lord a little bit, and then all of a sudden we start to be, begin to believe that we're actually righteous in and, our, in and of ourselves. And so we start thinking, well, oh yeah, you know, all those horrible people out there in the world, you know, Boy, I won't have anything to do with them. You know, I'm going to separate myself. And so we stay separate. We don't talk to sinners. We don't have anything to do with sinners. And, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not why I left you there. That's exactly who I want you to spend time with. That's exactly who I want you to reach. See, people outside the church are not our enemy. They are victims of the enemy. We need to remember that. You know, it's not us for no more, the holy huddle, that kind of thing. Get that out of your head. I mean, and so rather than inviting the world into the church, like the user-friendly movement have done and the modern-day church growth movement has done, they've invited the world into the church. They want the church, the, the world in the church, and they want them to be, care, be comfortable and everything, so they change the music, they, everything to cater to them so they'll come back next Sunday. No, that's not the answer. The answer is the church getting out into the world with the gospel, with the light of Christ. That's what we're called to do. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it says, and by this, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, once you are sanctified by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, there's no way you can become unsanctified. (laughs) In other words, it's a done deal. You don't get your salvation, then lose it, and then get it, and then lose. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what? What was done for you on the cross. That's so important to understand. Because if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, and you're trying to do all this stuff, it's all for naught. What what Jesus wants to say to you is, hey, just give it up. Give up. You can't do enough to save yourself. You can't do enough good things to make yourself look better before me, a holy God. It's never going to work. The only way that can work is when you come to Christ and you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. Hebrews 10, 14, he says, By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Isn't that a wonderful message? That You know what? We don't have to... Work at our sanctification positionally, that Christ and God completely see us as holy. That's hard to understand because I don't know about you, but um, I don't view myself as holy. You know, I got too many hang ups, I got too many things that happen every day that remind me, Steve, you're not holy. <laughs> you need to be working on your holiness, brother. Yeah. And we all have that. But before God, when he looks at us, he knows without a doubt that you are set apart completely onto him. Once for all. I, I thank God that, you know, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and every, every mass, you have an altar, you have a priest, and the priest basically reaches up with the host and he's taking Jesus out of heaven and he's sacrificing him anew on the altar for the sins of the people. It's heresy. It's wrong. That's not what we're called to do. 
Jesus went to the cross once. We don't need an altar. I, we don't need a priest. Matter of fact, the Bible calls us all priests who trust in Christ. We're a kingdom of priests. And he has perfected for all time, for all eternity. We're, we're completely looked at as holy before God, even though in our practice we're not. What a wonderful blessing. And even in Hebrews 13, 12, it says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order, listen, to sanctify the people through his own blood. He died in order to set us apart. That is this positional sanctification. It's your position. Well, secondly, you have a, what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Sanctification takes on different elements. It's, it's permanent in the fact that it's something that happened. It's, it's positional. But it's also progressive. And this is going on in our lives each and every day, the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, listen, transformed, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's God doing this work in us as believers. When we come to Christ, yes, positionally we're set aside as holy before, before God. But in our practice, God says, you know what, I'm working in you. I'm transforming you. I'm making you more like my son each and every day. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says this, Paul says this um, uh, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to the completion in the fear of God. You know, we need to understand that we need to be trusting God to do this work of sanctification in our hearts and in our minds. And even the Apostle Paul, think about it, the Apostle Paul, the, the, the most famous of all the apostles, he wrote most of the New Testament, you could say. God used him in incredible ways, very bright man, former Pharisee. I mean, he, he knew his stuff. And yet, what he writes in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 It's just a good lesson for us. He says, not that I, the Apostle Paul, has already obtained this. Or I'm already perfected, he says. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider myself as as that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? Our sanctification, our complete holiness. Paul wants us to understand that that's not something that just happens overnight. Even though positionally we are declared holy before God, there's a progressive sanctification that's being worked out in our lives. Well, how does God work this out? He works it out through trials. He works it out through tribulations. He works it out through aches and pains and ailments that we have. He works it out through everything that comes into our life. 
Do you know that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing in your life is by chance? Nothing just happens to you just as a random chance. I mean, if you're driving down the freeway and you get in a wreck, guess what? That's God-ordained. It may do, be to the fact of your own stupidity, but it's still God-ordained. God allowed it to happen for whatever his purpose was. And you can do that on good things. Wow, man, I was really blessed. Look at this. God ordained that. And you can apply that same truth to bad things. See, we, we like to apply it just to the good things, right? Look at how God has blessed us. Oh, look at this. Look at that. And then we, we take joy in that. But when we're troubled with tribulations and trials, we find it hard to apply what Philippians and what James tells us to do, find it joyful to embrace those. Why? Because we know God is using that for our good. And here, the Apostle Paul says, look, I, I may be a little more mature in Christ than you all, but guess what? I, I'm not arrived yet, practically. I'm still working at it. And this is something that, that God does in us and through us. But we still have to be cooperative with him. You know, we don't just lay back in our armchairs of, of grace and say, okay, God, pastor said it's all you, so I'm not going to do anything. No. You look at that verse in Philippians, and he says, you know what? I, I press on. In other words, there's, there's some energy being spent by the Apostle Paul. He says, I, I, I do this one thing. I forget what's behind, and I strain forward. Think of a sprinter who, who, who's running toward the, the, the finish line, and he's straining to break that ribbon so that he can take first prize. Every muscle in his body is, is toned to perfection, but he's still straining. He can't just show up at the starting line and say, hey, I'm better than all you. I win. No. I was watching golf, Ken, yesterday, and they were playing at night, some Tiger Woods and some guys, and I was seeing that, he, I realized that after a while, they get close to the hole, and then they'd say, oh, that's just a gimme. You know, they'd, they'd give it to him. And I'm like, man, I wouldn't do that. I'd make them putt it. Because there have been some putts that they've actually missed that have been that close. But you know what? They had to hear in the Christian life, you don't get any givenies. You know what? You're positionally sanctified, but it's a strenuous thing to continuously strive toward Christ. And notice in Philippians there, Paul says, I forget what lies behind. You know, the problem with a lot of Christians today is they're unwilling to do that. Their former sins are living in their head rent-free. And they feel unworthy. So, you know, what happens is the devil takes all of their sin. That, by the way, if they've come to Christ and it's been forgiven, God has forgotten it. It's gone. He's buried it in the depth of the sea. He put up a no fishing, moved as far as the east is from the west. I mean, you can't get any clearer from what the Bible says. But you know what? The problem with a lot of believers is they can't. They can't forget it. And so what do they do? They focus on it. And what does that do? It just draws them down into the pit of despair. And guess what? That's where the enemy wants you. Because the enemy can't have your soul. As a believer, he can't have your soul. But he can sure wreck your testimony. He can sure ruin your witness. He can sure wreck your ministry if you allow him to. And all you have to do is stand in, in front of a mirror for a while. 
and start looking at yourself. And you start realizing, man, I don't deserve this. Who am I? I can't do this. I mean, sometimes God has a way of reminding us of our own practical unholiness and inability before him. And the moment we start to believe that, oh, God, I got this. What do we do? We stop praying. You know, we think we know it all in the Bible, so we don't go to Bible studies anymore. Oh, I know it all. I don't need to be taught. And we start believing this lie. And what happens is, you know what? We end up in a position where we think we're self-righteous. And then we become legalistic. And we start looking down our noses at everybody else. Because we've so forgotten from where God has saved us and where we've come. And then we're just a horrible te- te- testimony to other people in the world because they look at us and they just say, you're just a self-righteous snob. I don't want anything to do with you. Why would I come to your church? Why would I want anything to do with your God? But see, when they see somebody who's been broken and somebody who's living in victory over their sin and understanding what it means to forget what lies behind and understand who you are in Christ, I mean, that's an amazing thing. You know what was in Paul's past? The murder of Christians. Think about that. I mean, he actually murdered Christians before he was a Christian. That would be a hard thing to get over. And then you want to come to church and play pastor with everybody? I mean, that would be difficult. It would be difficult for me to stand before you if I was a murderer and an adulterer and name the, name the, 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 the sins. That would be hard. But Paul said, you know what? I forget all that because it's forgiven. It's under the blood of Christ. And I press on to what is next. This is this progressive sanctification. And it's, you never arrive. You never get to the point where you've been to church enough and you finally are completely holy in your walk before everybody. No, no, never on this face of the earth. But the next step, the third aspect of sanctification is simply this perfect sanctification or future sanctification our future holiness this will be when we reach perfection in christ it will happen the instant we see the lord remember he just got done telling them in the previous chapters about what about the rapture of the church about telling them how christ is coming back for you in the moment in the twinkling of an eye you will be transformed this fleshly sinful body will be made glorious and will be taken to heaven with the Lord to be with him forever? I mean, think of that. No more pains, no more aches, no more sinful things. Just, you're going to be totally like Christ. What an exciting thing to look forward to. First John talks about this in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are, positionally, we are. He saved us. We see him sanctifying us each day. But then he says this, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, you think you got it good as a Christian right now? You have no idea, no idea what awaits you in glory. We can't understand it. We can't conceive it. He says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be completely in our glorified state at that point. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. This was the concern that Paul had for them. He wanted them to understand that, you know what? In the future here, you've you, you got some sanctification still coming. 
God wants you to be holy as God is holy. And this is something that we need to be working on. And you say, well, is it God that does it or is it, is it we that do this? Well, look at what verse 24 says. It says, he who calls you is faithful. And then it says this, he will surely what? He will surely do it. In other words, you don't even have any choice in the matter, really. One way or another, God is going to make you holy. God is going to set you apart and sanctify you. And this is what he says back to 1 John 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, even though maybe practically we're not. I mean, how many times a week do we look at ourselves and go, man, I can't even call myself child of God right now. I'm so ticked off at somebody or whatever. You know, we, we get in those frames of mind, right? But he says, you know what? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We may not always act like it. And that's not an excuse, by the way, for sin. We should always be striving to become more holy in our living and everything else. But it says, and so we are. We are children of God because God calls us children. And then in verse, it continues there in verse 1, he says, the reason why the world does not know us, is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we have is coming is, is not appeared yet. And I notice verse 3, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, the goal is Christ-likeness. You can't just get Christ-likeness automatically. You can't take your Bible and put it under your pillow and go to sleep at night and wake up a stronger Christian in the morning. It doesn't work that way. You know, that's like thinking, you know, some people think, well, I'm going to go to church, so that's going to make me a Christian. No. I forget who said it, but somebody said, yes, like, you know, going to McDonald's and wishing, thinking that it makes you a hamburger. It doesn't work that way. Okay? It just doesn't work. This is something that God does in and through us, but at the same time, we have to be working at our own purity. We have to be doing what God has instructed us, you know, and you say, well, what does he instruct us? Well, look at what he says. He's already told us this. He says, encourage the faint-hearted, verse 14, admonish the idle, help the weak, be patient with them all. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to do all that. You don't have to do anything as a Christian. No. He says, you have to do those things. But the good news is, I'm going to do them through you. You just cooperate with me. He says, see to it that no one pays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And then he says, for this is God's will for you. And as a child of God, you should want to do what God desires you to do. Sometimes I just get frustrated. Sometimes people... When it comes to serving different ministries or whatever. And, you know, it seems like some people are just forever praying about where God wants them to serve. You know? Um, and it, it, it's, it's tough sometimes. Because it's like, what are you waiting for? What, do you think God's going to whisper it to you, you know, at night or something? I want you to serve in the nursery. Oh, wait, there's no children in the nursery. I want you to serve in the kitchen. I want you to serve. No, it doesn't happen that way. How does it happen? You serve because you're grateful. You're, you're grateful for what God has done for you. I mean, I just didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? Uh, 
I was thinking of being a police officer and maybe going to the military, but I think I'll be a pastor. Yeah, why not? No, no. I mean, I even went to Bible school and I still didn't think I was going to be a pastor. Had no desire to be a pastor. I was just going there to learn some more about God and about the Bible because I was a brand new Christian. I didn't understand God's call on my life at that time. But see, God is faithful. He will surely do it. Our our certainty of our future is is not based on our own abilities or our own talents or our own giftedness or our own religion. It's based on God's faithfulness. We serve a faithful God. Amen? And when he says he'll do something, he will do it. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is why I just don't understand people that believe that somehow you can gain your salvation and then they lose it. You know, and that's the problem. They think they gain their salvation. They think somehow their salvation is a result of their works or their, their own good works before, before God. No. The only reason we're saved is because of God's grace. It's the work that he does on our behalf. And so if he does that work of calling us and setting us apart and making us holy before him, do you think we can undo that? Do you think we have the power to say, God, you know what? I know you chose me to be saved, but I'm not going to be saved. No, you don't. You can't stand up to an almighty God that way. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God our salvation doesn't rely on us. I mean, I praise the Lord for that. It's not up to our good works. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. God's on our side as Christians. I don't have to run around worrying what Satan's doing. I don't really care what Satan does. He already lost. He lost the battle. He lost the war. He's a defeated foe. He doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to think that. But as a Christian, we don't have to worry about that. We forge on. We press on, like Paul says, because we're already established. And he is guarding us against the evil one. So this reassurance about the future comes from our completion at his coming and Paul's concern about our holiness. But also here, look at verses 25 to 27 as we close out here because he points out that you know people have different reactions to what Paul is saying here. And after saying, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He just kind of says, brothers, pray for us. <laughs> brothers, he's addressing them as, as fellow believers. You know, if, there, if you're going to spend time in prayer... I know Ken and I would really appreciate your prayers. We need your prayers more than you would ever even understand or know. You know, on a daily basis, I thank God for the prayers of this congregation, the prayers of my family. Because you know what? There's no way, no way we could do what we do without your prayers. We need your prayers. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your elders. Pray for those who serve here at the church. Pray for this church. 
you know, in the, in the climate of everybody compromising, everybody welcoming everybody, all this stuff's going on around us, pray that we would stay true to God's word. That we wouldn't bend, we wouldn't yield. He says, pray for us. Pray that God would keep our hearts pure. Keep our minds stayed upon him. Pray that God would show us what to teach and how to teach and where to teach. Pray for our marriages. Pray for our families. You know, it's interesting that at the beginning of this book, Paul started out himself praying for those in Thessalonica. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Constantly. Not once a week. Not once a month. You know, we don't do this perfectly. But boy, I'd really challenge you to make it a point to pray for those who serve the Lord in ministry. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says this, that we should be praying at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. In other words, do you ever find yourself praying and you fall asleep? I have, I'll be honest. Sometimes I'm praying and I just fall asleep. I'm praying. Well, Paul says, don't do that. Be alert. Making supplication for all the saints. If you're not praying for the elders, pray for somebody else in the church. Pray for your relatives. Pray for other believers. Pray for other churches. And he says, and also, he says, pray for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Pray that. Anyone who teaches in our church speaks boldly for the cause of Christ. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us. You know, sometimes we don't like to ask people for prayer. I don't like to personally. I'm too stubborn and too self-willed thinking I can do it my own way. So I don't want to show weakness by asking people for prayer. Do I need prayer? Oh, more than you can ever even imagine. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Pray that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. And then he says in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So, brethren, pray for us. Secondly, verse 26, he closes out here quickly, and he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Well, what in the world is this talking about? For somebody who's not real affectionate in public, even with my own wife, let alone with people in the body of Christ, I read this, and boy, the hairs in back of my neck go up. You know, it's like, yeah, I don't want to. Well, this is a cultural thing. It is. I mean, in certain parts of the world, when people greet you, especially those who are in Christ, they, you know, you, you put out your hand like this. Have you ever met somebody who just hugs, they don't shake your hand? And, you know, I'm always like, here, you know, and they just like, yeah, whatever. It's like, oh, okay, this is uncomfortable. And then usually people like that give you a little snooker there on the, on the cheek or the neck, you know, just kind of, you know, it's just kind of weird if you don't 
You know, in America, we think it's kind of weird. In other countries, it's just normal. It's, it's very common in certain Italian homes, things like that. They're always hogging and stuff. But here, notice he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. <laughs> a holy kiss. Because throughout the centuries, people even within the church have, have taken that verse and said, hey, yeah, she's pretty good looking. I think I'll go give her a big plan on the lips. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a holy kiss. It's speaking about genuine affection towards someone, a love in your heart toward one another. Um, today in America, we, I don't think we understand this very much. And I think we under, need to understand it better as a church. Now, don't everybody start kissing after the service. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Uh, give, give somebody a hug or a handshake, whatever. That's fine. That's kind of what we do culturally here. But you know what? It's interesting. Even when the whole COVID thing hit and you couldn't do that, remember? Think back. It was weird, wasn't it? It's like you go to, oh, oh, oh you know, do fist bump or elbow, whatever. It's so weird. It was just bizarre. It's like you couldn't, couldn't approach anyone, you know? You, even now, you go in little stores and they have those stupid little circles. They're six feet apart. It's like, what the world are you talking about? Yeah. They're, they're still there. I, I'd love to know the guy that got the privilege of printing all those things up. Think about it. I mean, they're really on it. You know, oh, we need little stickers to put on all the stores and, you know, keep everybody apart. In Romans 16, 16, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, 20, all the brothers and sisters Sisters, or all the brothers, send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Even in 1 Peter 5, 14, he writes, greet one another with a kiss of love. All right? This is what this means. It, it, it speaks of this affection that we should have for one another within the body of Christ. And some of us who are less affectionate than others, you know what? We'll deal with it. You know, it's, it's good to feel the embrace of a brother or sister in Christ. And by the way, in churches generally, and culturally especially, it was usually kind of same-sex things going on here. <laughs> you know, it wasn't women going over and kissing men or men kissing women. It was, it was among the same, you know, guys would, they wouldn't necessarily shake your hand, but they'd give you a hug and give you a kiss on the cheek. You know, there's some households that still do that. Some of them do it twice. You know, they kiss you on the left cheek and they kiss you on the right cheek. So what in the world's going on here? You know, now in Russia, I'm told, I've never been there, but I'm told they kiss you on the lips, which is kind of weird, but that's what they do culturally. It's just a sign of affection. So Paul says, hey, don't lose that. Don't, don't get in the church and start thinking, oh, we're above all that. We're not we're going to have. No, we still have to be genuinely affectionate toward one another. And then in verse 27, I love this verse. He says, I put you under oath. In other words, this is kind of another exhortation in a roundabout way. That's why I said, what a way to say goodbye. You know, it'd be like dropping your kid off at college and saying, you know, you better get straight A's. And, you know, that wouldn't be a really nice goodbye. But he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Why did he want it read to all the brethren? Because he knew the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write this, first of all. He knew what he was writing. He knew these were the words of God. These weren't Paul's words. He probably wrote this letter and, man, oh, God, I don't even know if I want to send this. Some of this is pretty direct to these people that I love. You know, it's like sometimes you get up and you got to preach a sermon and you're going, well, I don't know about this one. But the Bible says what it says. And you know that, boy, this is going to probably maybe possibly offend some people or whatever, but, you know, you can't just skip over the verses. 
So you do it knowing that it's God's word. This is what Paul says. He says, this epistle, this letter should be read to all the brethren. That's how important it is. He says the same thing in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, when you're done reading the letter, you pass it on to somebody else because this is the word of God. It's not the word of Paul. Are we reading God's word? Would be my question. Are we reading God's epistle, his letters to us on a regular basis? Or is it like, well, come on Sunday and hopefully the pastor preaches a good message because that's all I'm going to get because either I don't have a Bible at home and if you don't, come and speak to us, we'll get you one. Or I don't open it at home. That's a shameful thing for someone who says they follow Christ. A shameful thing for a child of God not to be interested in what God's word says to your heart. We should be studying it. We should be learning it. We should be growing in our knowledge of it. Last thing here, verse 28. Kind of capstones the whole letter with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is, what is grace? God, God's unmerited favor. It's something that God favors you with that you don't deserve. He gives it to you even though you you don't deserve it. That's what God's grace is. That's what our salvation is. It's a gift that God has given us that we don't deserve because we said we're not holy. We've all sinned before a holy God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need God's grace. We all need God's unmerited favor, a favor that, that is given to us without merit. We don't deserve it. And notice whose grace it is. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his grace that comes through the cross. When you realize that's all you need, (laughs) then you can honestly say, yes, now I'm a believer. When you realize without, you could have everything in the world, but if you don't have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have anything, nothing. Because you are looking at an eternity. Not a couple years, not 5,000 years, not 10,000 years, an eternity under God's wrath, under God's judgment, in a place called hell that, yes, it is real, it does exist. And without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where all the people will go. And so we need to be very understanding in that this, this is what we need. We need God's grace. We need God's grace to become more like Christ. We need God's grace to serve in the church. We need God's grace to do what he's called us to do. We need God's grace to see other people who have not yet come to Christ be saved and come to Christ. We need God's grace when we share the gospel. We need God's grace when we re- read the word. We need God's grace when we pray. We need God's grace like the air we breathe, literally. And until you understand that, you're really not, you're missing it. Because this is how dependent God wants us to be on him. You know, it'd be kind of like if, if all of a sudden I had an air tank up here and I had one hose. And all of a sudden all the air was sucked out of this room. Where would you want to go? You would want to come see me to take a snuff off this hose, right? Because you'd want air to breathe or you would die. 
And if I'm the only one that had the tank, you would be lining up, you would be chasing after me. Because of that. That's, that's the idea here. We need to have our priorities right. This world is coming unraveled as we watch. We're seeing the word of God being fulfilled almost on a weekly basis. And so we, we need to be understanding that, hey, there's so much more to it. But if you don't have the grace of God in your life, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. And so Paul ends with that exhortation, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that blessing be with you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do thank you for this epistle that we spent so many weeks together as a church going through. And Lord, we look forward to reading ahead in 2 Thessalonians and seeing what Paul has as he writes a second letter to this young church. But Lord, we pray that you would cement in our own hearts the words that we heard here this morning. Father, you are such a good God. You are so gracious to us in so many different ways. And Father, we pray that you would um, help us to understand our need for you, our need for our sins to be forgiven. Lord, and it doesn't matter what kind of past we've come from. We could have grown up in a Christian family or we could have grown up in a total pagan family family that didn't even believe in God. It doesn't matter. We still have the same need. We still come before you in our sin. And we're looking to you as our holy God, and you have provided an answer for us. And Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You've made that very clear. And Lord, we don't have to work at it. We don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops and things that people want us to do. Lord, you have simply said, you know what? All you have to do is come. Come, all ye who are thirsty. Come, all ye who are burdened down with your sin. Come to Christ. Ask him to help you. Cry out to him your need for him, your need for salvation. You say, salvation from what? Salvation from your sin. Salvation from the penalty of your sin, which is death. We desperately need Christ. And if you're here today and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray that even now you would cry out to him. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. Give me understanding in what this man's saying here today. I know that things aren't right between me and God. I want to come to Christ and make it right. I want to yield my life to him. I want him to take control, to be my Savior and my Lord. That's a prayer that he will answer. Even in the quietness of this moment, he'll answer it right now. And, and now for the first time, if you pray that prayer and you, you come to Christ and he saves you and he transforms you and he opens your eyes to the truth, I guarantee you, you'll have a whole different kind of Christmas this year than you've ever had before. Because you'll understand why we celebrate Christmas. Why we understand, why we celebrate the gift that was given to us through Christ. Even as a little baby. He grown, he was grown to be a, a full grown man. And then he was led to a cross. Even though he was perfect in every way, he lived a perfect life while he was here on earth. He died on a cross for your sins and for mine. 
And when you put your faith, your trust in him, he forgives you of those sins. And he gives you new life in Christ. And he makes you holy positionally. You have to look forward to that perfect sanctification when he returns. And even now, every day, you have that progressive sanctification. He's working out his holiness in you. For us believers here, I pray that we would use this time of year to to really pray about who to invite to the service, even Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, or maybe have them over for lunch or dinner to share with them the glorious truth of what Christmas is really about, the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would touch people's hearts. And Father, we also pray for our time across the way, and we ask that you would bless the food to our bodies, bless our fellowship, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.